you would please look with me at Romans chapter 6, verses 20 through 23. This uh, will be our last look at this uh, sixth chapter, and we're going to look at these three verses, reading them together, and then as I've indicated in the sermon title, just think about some implications of the things that we've been wrestling with here. So read with me at verse 20, Romans chapter 6. And this is, again, God's word, given because he loves his people, given to you, his people, for your good and well-being. When you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? The end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, uh, please again, as we come to your word, um, grant us your spirit. Grant us your spirit, that spirit and word might come together so that our eyes might be opened and our minds enlightened and our hearts captivated somehow, somehow, by the beauty of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And being captivated by the beauty of that grace, may it flow out through our hands and our fingers and our feet and our words into the world around us. Lord, come by your Spirit and preach to us from your Word. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. As I said, we're taking uh, one final look at the sixth chapter of Paul's letter to the Romans, and uh, what I would like to do is uh, kind of get the big picture again before we move on to chapter 7, just sort of review what we've seen. We've been drilling down into this passage. We've been looking at words and phrases, and what I've been trying to suggest to us through this series of sermons is that here in this passage, as much as any passage in the New Testament you have the basis for understanding how the Christian life is to be lived. This is the foundational passage. It's as important as any passage you'll find anywhere in the Scriptures when it comes to understanding how the Christian life is lived, what the Christian life is, and how it's lived. And and we kind of want to look at that and sort of review it and then think through some implications of this uh, at the end. And as as we do this, as we sort of review where we've been, look at where we've been, get this big picture again, and then go on to look at some implications. Uh, I want us to remember that Paul in this passage is answering some questions. You see it in verse 1, you see it again in verse 15, that there are questions in the text. And here's what he's been doing, again, to, to sort of summarize everything up to this point. He's been, he's been explaining the gospel. Gospel is good news, right? It's great good news. And he's been unpacking the great good news. And the great good news is this, 
I mean, it's, it's, it's cosmic in scope, as we're going to see if we ever get to chapter 8 of Romans. It's cosmic in scope because the sort of the last wonderful word that Paul expresses regarding the gospel is that eventually the curse under which the whole of the creation labors is going to be lifted. The whole of the creation is going to be freed from its bondage. Now let me tell you what that means, folks. That's not an abstract idea. That's not just a notion in somebody's brain that somebody thinks is cute. It is extraordinarily hopeful. What that means is that the day is coming when this curse is lifted, when the creation is freed from its bondage. That means no more earthquakes. That means no more tsunamis. That means no more ravaging destruction. That's the gospel, friends. I said to the class this morning, look, the gospel is about you, but the gospel is way bigger than you. The gospel, the good news of the kingdom of King Jesus extends to the whole of the cosmos, the whole of the creation. That's the last word that Paul is going to sort of announce about this gospel. And up to this point, what he's been saying is there. You know, there is a way to be reconciled to God. There is a way to be reconciled to God. There is a way to be at peace with Him. And the way to be reconciled to Him, the way to be at peace with Him, has nothing to do with who I am or what I have done. It has nothing to do with my ethnicity. It has nothing to do with my moral code. It has nothing to do with any of that but I can be reconciled to God entirely, solely, but completely on the basis of what Jesus has done in my place. That's how I can be reconciled to God. Just as Abraham, the father of the Israelite nation, the one who is held in such high esteem and regard by Paul himself and by the people to whom he's writing, just as Abram believed God, entrusted himself to God and God's promise. That's what Abram did. He entrusted himself, he entrusted himself to Jesus in promise form. And having believed God and having entrusted himself to God, God declared him just. He was justified. That is, he was declared innocent. He was reconciled to God, accepted by God, uh, restored to communion and fellowship with God because he believed God's promise. We on this side live in light of the fulfillment of that promise. Abram was looking ahead. We're looking back, but it's all the same. The centerpiece of all of human history is Jesus Christ. The centerpiece of all of human history is the cross. The cross is the hinge upon which the doors of history hang. And everything on the other side points to him and everything on this side points back to him. And the Christian is someone who has said two things. A Christian purely and simply is someone who has said two things. I'm a sinner and I need a Savior. And Jesus is the Savior I need.
Maybe that's three things, but you get the point. I'm a sinner, and I need a Savior. And a Christian is one who has taken Christ, Christ who is sinless and innocent before God. A Christian is someone who has taken him, laid hold of him, embraced him, and trusted him or herself to him to find in him, in Jesus Christ, forgiveness and acceptance and reconciliation and peace with God. That's where it's found. It just isn't found in any other place. The reason the Japanese labor under so much spiritual darkness that begins to be manifested in their culture, in the way that they live their lives, is because they are forever seeking to please and honor their ancestors, those who have gone before them, who become gods to them. The gospel to the Japanese person, the gospel to a person living in America who is doing the same thing, seeking to please somebody or something, seeking to reach up to something or somebody. The gospel is the same. The gospel is that God has come down, that God has reached down to lay hold of those who need a Savior. I was given a copy of a wonderful biography this last week. Biography of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was executed. He was a Christian. He was a pastor. You've got to read this man's story. He was a Christian. He was a pastor. He was a theologian. He was an ethicist. And through the 1930s, Bonhoeffer stood against National Socialism in Germany, the Nazi Party, he stood against it. And he actually conspired with others to assassinate Adolf Hitler. He was found out, he was arrested, he was put in prison, and on April 9th, 1945, he was executed just two weeks before the liberation of the camp where he was incarcerated. He died. And Bonhoeffer wrote this, the religion of Christ is not a tidbit after one's bread. That is, it isn't the dessert. It isn't an add-on to the main meal. The religion of Christ is not a tidbit after one's bread. On the contrary, it is the bread or it is nothing. All he's saying is that Christianity is Christ. It's not a moral code. It's not a religious experience, a quiver in your liver. It is not a set of theological abstractions in your brain. There is a content to the Christian faith. There is an ethic to the Christian faith. There is an experience to the Christian faith. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Psalm 34, 8. There are all of those things in Christianity, but Christianity is Jesus, the person who lived a perfect life, who died a substitutionary death, who comes into this world to rescue me. Not to tell me how I can rescue myself, but to rescue me, to free me. And a Christian is someone who has come to see that, who's come to the place where he abandons everything 
and says as Bonhoeffer did, Christ is the whole meal, not some add-on. Christ is my life. Paul says it to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 1. Because of him you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. A Christian is someone who has come to understand that. I'm a sinner. I need a Savior. And so Paul can say to those who have come to that place, he can say in Romans 5.1, we are justified by faith. And because we are justified by faith, we have peace with God. We have peace with God. We are just like Abraham. That's why Abraham is used as this glorious example for Jew and Gentile alike. Abraham believed God, accepted his promise, received, embraced his promise, and as a result, because that promise pointed to Christ in the totality of his work, Abraham was justified, declared innocent, declared positively righteous in the sight of God, accepted by him, reconciled to him. That's what a Christian is. And Paul gets through with this explanation of the gospel and he's anticipating questions. And the reason Paul can anticipate these questions is because he's, he's aware of what it is that's going on in the minds of people who are listening to this letter be read, who perhaps themselves may have read it or read copies of it. He's mindful of the questions that will come into people's minds. And, and he has these two questions in verse 1 and then in verse 15. And in both cases, as Paul anticipates these questions, he's, he's formulating a response. He's anticipating that people will say, well, look, Paul, you've just said in verse 20 of chapter 5 that the law is actually given to make us more aware of sin. See, what's the purpose of the law? He's going to go on to talk about that at length in chapter 7. He's going to explain and unpack the significance, the meaning of the law and our relationship to the law. But in verse 20 of chapter 5, Paul, you've, you've just said that the law is given to make us more aware of sin. So let me connect the dots here. If my acceptance with God is not based upon my obedience to a moral code... In fact, if the reason that moral code is given is so that I might become more aware of my sin, then let's sin more so that grace might abound more. Remember this from a couple of weeks ago? God loves to forgive. I love to sin. It's a great, great recipe. I'll sin more so that he can forgive more. And Paul says, no, no, don't you understand? Don't you understand? This gospel that I'm speaking to you, this gospel that I'm proclaiming, that I'm seeking to unpack, it doesn't extend simply to your formal forgiveness. It extends to who you are as a person. Yes, it extends to your standing before God. Yes, on the basis of Christ's work, you may be accepted. But don't stop there. This salvation is way bigger than that. There's more to it than just your forgiveness. This gospel includes your transformation. This gospel means that you can be different. This gospel means that you can be changed. 
And so in these verses of chapter 6, this first couple of paragraphs beginning in verse 2, Paul uses this metaphor of death and resurrection. Death and resurrection. You've died with Christ. You've been buried with Christ so that being raised in Christ, you might walk in newness of life. You see, justification, think of it this way. Justification is something God does for me outside of me. This thing that Paul is talking about here is something that God does for me in me and to me. So that I might be different. So that I might be changed. What Paul's describing here is something so decisive that when he comes to verse 14 of chapter 6, he says, look, so decisive is this thing that God has done that sin will no longer have dominion over you. It's no longer sin that has dominion. It's no longer sin that has power. The old man has been crucified. Your connection to Adam has been severed. You've been united to a new lover. And so that old master, that old oppressive, brutal, life-denying, death-inducing master, sin, has died. And you've been set free. And you're now under a new dominion, and that is the dominion of grace. Well then, Paul, verse 15, Paul's anticipating this question. Well then, Paul, look, if you remove the restraining effects of the law, if you take the law completely out of the picture, if you say the law has no place here, people are going to say, then there's no danger in sinning. There's no danger to me in sinning. Because I'm under grace. Grace means that sin's power is broken. Grace means that sin's penalty is satisfied. Grace means that there's no longer this reign, but I'm under another reign, and so there's little danger in it. I can sin with impunity. I can sin without fear or threat of harm. And again, Paul says, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Sin with impunity? Sin without fear? Sin without threat? Think again. And that's where he comes to this wonderful verse. Verse 21. It's in response to this. What fruit were you getting at the time from the things of which you're now ashamed. Are, are you forgetting where you were? Are you forgetting what that was? And then through this paragraph, beginning at verse 15 and through the end, Paul uses yet another imagery. The first imagery is the imagery of death and sin and bondage that result from Adam's disobedience. But here, Paul uses another image, another analogy, and it is the imagery of slavery. Sin is a cruel taskmaster. Slavery is the image. Bondage that comes with slavery. And Paul says, are you kidding? You would want to go back to that? See, and this imagery of slavery conjures up for a Jewish reader, a Jewish listener, it conjures up all of the imagery associated with the Exodus. Right? 
They were slaves in Egypt. They were treated cruelly in Egypt by Pharaoh. They were held in bondage to Pharaoh. And then God came in might and power and broke the power of Pharaoh and released them from their bondage and set them free and set them on Exodus and set them in the direction of the promised land. And you remember when Israel was out in the wilderness? You remember they grumbled against Moses and they said, you know, the leeks and the garlic and the stuff that we were eating back in Egypt, that really was better than being out here in the wilderness eating this Ritz cracker with honey every day. Let's go back to Egypt. And to that, Paul would say, are you crazy? Don't you remember what was back there? Don't you remember? You've been set free from that. And yes, the wilderness is a difficult place. Yes, it's a place where it's hot in the daytime and it's very cold at night. Yes, it's a place where there are snakes and scorpions. But do you know what is out in front of you? Do you remember what is out in front of you? It's the promised land. And do you realize, do you remember the mighty acts of God by which he delivered you and set you free from that slavery? Why would you want to go back to Egypt? That's where we are in this. Paul, using these two great metaphors of death and resurrection and slavery and liberation to true freedom. And that means hope for me. That means that real change can come to my life and my whole life now. If I think back through these verses, my whole Christian life is not in the first instance about me running out and trying harder. My first impulse, my first motion, the first thing for me to do is to do what Paul encourages these people to do again and again and again. Present yourselves to God as slaves of righteousness. Turn in his direction. Turn toward him. You've been set free from death. You've been set free from sin as a power, a master, an oppressive force. Turn, turn in the direction of God. That is the foundation for living the Christian life. I have said this to you before. I need Jesus as much today as I needed Jesus the first day I came to understand the gospel. And you know what's interesting? I'm more painfully aware of the depth of my need today than I was 40 years ago when I first became a Christian. And the first impulse of my soul, when I'm sane, when I'm rational, when I'm thinking clearly, is to turn in the direction of the one who loved me in the first place, who set me free in the first place, to continue his work in me continue his work in me. Now let's think implications here for just a few minutes. Here's the first one. And I and this is this is this is real real serious and sober stuff. And I want to say to you as I as I I've thought about this all week and as I think about this I I I say this because I'm a pastor, because I'm concerned. I don't say this as a way to try to figure out who's in and who's out. That's not the point here. Okay? 
The first implication is this. To be a Christian is to be changed. To be a Christian is to be changed. Listen to this. If there is no change, it may be that there has been no change. You understand what I'm saying? If there is no change, it may be that there has been no change. Folks, across 30 plus years of ministry, I've had so many conversations with people who have said things like this. When I was in college, I prayed a prayer to accept Jesus. When I was in high school, I went to a young life meeting and I heard the gospel and I accepted Jesus. When I was 32 years old in the midst of a very difficult circumstance, I went to a Billy Graham crusade and I walked the aisle and I prayed a prayer. And as I meet with folks, and I tell you painfully, as I meet with folks and I listen to them talk about their lives, I can't know for sure, only God knows for sure, but I have to ask myself, where is the change? Where is the change? These are people who come to me because they find themselves in trouble. These honestly, are spouses who come to me about a spouse. These are parents who come to me about a child, and they say, my child did this, my spouse did that. But they're struggling because they look at the spouse, they look at the child, or they look at themselves, and they say, there's no change. And the question, friends, the question is not, what have I done? The question is, Has something happened to me? There's a difference. Has something happened to me? Three times in the sixth chapter, Paul says, He set you free. He set you free. He set you free. Ten verbs in this passage are in the passive voice. What that means is the person being referred to has been acted upon. Something has happened to that person. That's the question I have to ask myself. Not did I do something, but did God do something to me? Have I been raised from death to life? Have I been freed from slavery? That is an enormously significant question. My friends, I'm convinced there are... I don't say this to stand in judgment of people. I I say this because I'm desperately concerned for people that there are tens of thousands of people in evangelical churches, churches that believe the Bible, that embrace the Bible, tens of thousands of people who may have walked an aisle, may have prayed a prayer, may have done something, and they have not been raised from death to life. They've not been freed from bondage and slavery to sin. If that's you this morning, here is what your prayer has to be. God, change me. God, have mercy upon me and change me. You notice in this passage, Paul says in verse 17, Thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the mind. 
Obedient from the will. Obedient from the emotions. No, obedient from the heart. From the deepest recesses of the soul. From the deepest recesses of who and what I am. A Christian is someone in whom and upon whom God has acted at the control and command center of who and what I am. And everything begins to change. How is it possible for Dietrich Bonhoeffer How is it possible for Dietrich Bonhoeffer to face execution and to face that execution in the words of the physician who attended him just hours before he died for that physician to say, in all of my years of practicing medicine, never have I witnessed a person dying so completely submissive to the will of God of God, and at peace. What does the prospect of death do to you? I'm not saying that death is an insignificant thing. I'm not saying it's a small deal. It's a really big deal. But when you stare it squarely in the face, has something deep, deep at the core of your being been so fundamentally altered that your orientation is so entirely in the direction of Jesus Christ, who is eternal life, that you can actually imagine having entrusted yourself to Him, facing death squarely in the face, and by God's grace, being at peace. That's what Paul is describing here. Something that happens in me that so reorients me, so redirects me, that as in the words of the hymn, the things of earth grow strangely dim in light of Jesus' glory and grace. The first implication is this. Being a Christian means being changed. If there has been no change, it may be that there has been no change. Please, please consider this. There's a whole lot that hangs in the balance. And if you need to talk to someone, please call me. Please see me. Please just say to me on the way out the door, call me this week. I need to talk to you about this. Second implication, we always, always, always have to keep separate our justification and our sanctification, okay? Look, I know these are technical terms. They're Bible terms. They're important terms. Justification is what God does outside of me. He declares me innocent positively righteous because of Christ. He declares me accepted, reconciled, and delivered safely forever into his presence. That's my justification. I have peace with God. Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No threat. No threat. Sanctification is an ongoing work. It is what God is doing in me. I am accepted. I am being changed. I am accepted. 
I am being changed. Last week, um, I made a grievous mistake in my opening illustration. You may remember that I referred to someone who visited with us two weeks ago and whom I said was no longer present with us, who had gone back to Canada. And I said that this lovely person, who was 73 years old, had struggled for 73 years to come to a place of assurance, the assurance of her acceptance with God. Lo and behold, she hadn't gone back to Canada. She was here. And lo and behold, she's not 73, she's 72. (laughs) There are two places you want to go low, on the golf course and when it comes to women's ages. But I tell you again, we had a delightful conversation after the service, and she said, it is so freeing. It is, this is a paraphrase. I'm summarizing what she said. It is so encouraging to know that I'm in process and that the struggle is actually an indication of life and not judgment and death. I'm in process. That's my sanctification. That's my growing and emerging. I'm emerging here. I told a story last week about Michelangelo taking this flawed piece of rock and producing this marvelous piece of sculpture, the David, out of this flawed piece of rock. I said, doesn't that sound like the gospel, that God would take something flawed and produce a thing of beauty? What's really interesting, and I wish I had time to tell this whole story, what's really interesting is that by the end of his life, Michelangelo wasn't completing his sculptures. There are these representations of human beings emerging from the rock, emerging from the stone. And the tour guide who pointed this out to us said, this is what she said. I don't know if she knew what Michelangelo said, but this is what she said. She said Michelangelo got to the place where he came to understand that only God could produce the thing of pure and exquisite beauty. The best he could do was begin the process. Only God can produce the thing of pure and exquisite beauty. And my friends, that is what God is doing. You are emerging. And what are the hammer and chisel that he uses in your life? The hammer and chisel are the word of God and prayer and the sacraments and the fellowship of God's people. It's this stuff, it's right here that God employs to chip away at the rough edges and to smooth out what needs to be smoothed out. You're in process, my friends with me. Never confuse your justification and your sanctification. And then here's the third thing. Each of these warrants a sermon. It's all free. It's all free. Romans 6.23 The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You know, don't you, that the Christian life begins by accepting a free gift offered to you, let me tell you, the the Christian life continues in the same way. The Christian life continues as moment by moment, day by day, I turn in the direction of Jesus, not to earn something, not to gain something, but to receive something from him. It starts with freedom. It ends with freedom. 
Friday morning at the Women's Refuge in teaching through Ephesians. I used this illustration of the man at the door, this man who knocks on your door and he's wonderfully attired. And when he begins to speak, you understand that he's English and he has two people with him. And he says, I have some news for you. It's news you will not believe, but it is true. And I ask you for a few minutes to tell it to you. And the good news is this. You think that Harry is the heir to the throne in England, but he is not. He is not. There was a usurper six centuries ago. Harry is the son of the usurper. William is the son of the usurper. Charles is the son of the usurper. We've studied the genealogical records and we have learned that you are the proper heir to the throne of England. You are the proper heiress to the throne of England. That is who you are. It comes to you. You don't earn it. You don't deserve it. You can't believe it. It comes to you. And my friends, the whole of the Christian life is learning how to live like a queen. Learning how to live like a king. Learning to be who I am because of Jesus. It all, from start to finish, comes to me as a free gift. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together and move in the direction of the Lord's table. Father, grant us your mercy. Grant us your grace and peace as together we reflect upon these things, as together we consider these things, and as together we gather at this table, press these things home to our hearts, Lord Jesus, and now feed us. Feed us at this table as we trust you have fed us in your word. We pray in your name. Amen. Would you stand with me?